Well, good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It is an awesome day to be here in the house of the Lord to worship Him this morning. Today we are in our third Sunday of Advent, and we've been working our way into the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves looking at Luke 1. Uh, verses 39 through 56 overall, but really particularly verses 45 through 56 is where we will spend the majority of our time. The term Advent simply refers to the, the Latin term meaning coming. So we think of Advent, and when we think of Advent, the purpose is to take a step back in time, if you will, and to remember that for generation after generation, the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, the one who would rescue them from their sin and would ultimately rescue them from this world that we live in that is so broken. And as they looked forward to that coming Messiah for years and years and and generation after generation, century after century, we realize today that that Messiah came on what we refer to as Christmas Day. That He came, was born as a man, born as a baby, lived a perfect sinless life, and died on the cross for our sins. But what was not clearly seen, has now, it was certainly foretold in the Old Testament, but is now clearly seen that that coming would come in two stages. First, the suffering Messiah, and then the coming conquering Messiah. And we stand between those two stages now where the suffering Messiah has come, His kingdom has been established, but He's coming back to, a sta- to, to bring it into finality, to establish it once and for all, to, to reign and rule in righteousness here. So as we celebrate Advent, we remember the coming of Christ while also looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And as I've said week after week, and I pray that as Christmas gets closer and closer and closer that you, your hearts are filled with anticipation and joy as mine is. I can't wait until Christmas Eve. I cannot wait. My, my heart cries out as I want to see that last candle lit because it means we celebrate the coming Messiah who came, but also because He came, a sure promise that He will indeed return. So with that in mind, I've titled this sermon series, Rejoicing in Hope. Because we can rejoice knowing for certain that because He came, He is coming again. We can rejoice in a certain um, promise. We can, we can rejoice in the fact that we know He will return. So today we look at the next part of our text. I'm just going to read Isaiah 39, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 1, 39-45. And then we will look at the rest of the text piece by piece. But before I do that, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. I thank You so much that we have this opportunity here today to look at Your Word. God, I pray and ask that You would be with us, that You would encourage us, that You would bless us. God, that You would knit our hearts together in love as we seek to live out the life that You have called us to, not only as individuals, but also as a church. God, I pray that we would be faithful to not only be hearers of Your Word, but also doers of Your Word. God, I pray that You would work miraculously in us today as we seek to know You more and to do Your will. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So Luke 1, starting at verse 39, as Matt read earlier through 45, says this, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary comes, she's been told by the angel Gabriel that she's going to give birth to a son, that this son would be a, he would be the Messiah, that he would change everything, that she would be, uh, she would give birth to the coming Savior. And she's also told that her relative Elizabeth, who is advanced in years, will give birth to a child as well. So she goes to see Elizabeth, and we hear this wonderful account of Elizabeth's response and John the Baptist's response, even in the womb, to the coming of his Savior, of the Messiah. And both Elizabeth responds with great joy, with rejoicing. John, even in the womb, responds with great joy, with rejoicing. And then Mary responds in the same way, with great joy. In verses 46 through 56. So the the verses we'll spend, as I mentioned, the majority of our time on are on those verses. And they record what is frequently called the Magnificat. And and the term, it's simply a Latin term, and it means to magnify. And it's named as such because of Mary's opening statement when she says, my soul magnifies. Or as the New American Standard Version reads, exalts. My, My soul exalts, it magnifies the Lord. The Greek carries this idea of lifting up or praising, or glorifying, or increasing in honor. Furthermore, in verse 47, Mary says that her spirit has rejoiced in God her Savior. So by saying that her soul and her spirit are glorifying and rejoicing in God, Mary is expressing the point, the fact that she is overcome. That every part of her being is overflowing with praise. In other words, Mary's response to God's grace in her life is marked by worship. That Mary understands God's grace, and the thing that naturally flows out of that is lifting up God and His holy name, is worshiping Him. I know a family who is very purposeful in speaking with their little Children, they have younger children, and they'll, they, they are purposeful in never saying, we have to go to church. They always say, we get to go to church. Because they're trying to reinforce this idea that worship flows out of receiving God's grace, that it's the natural response, that it's something that is good, that it is a gift to be able to worship God. It's not an obligation But when we understand what God has done for us, the grace that He has shown us, then worship is something that just flows out of our lives. That's why week after week I say, we must never lose sight 
of the Gospel. And sometimes I feel like a broken record when I talk about being Gospel-centered, making the Gospel the main thing, focusing on the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But the point is that when we gather on Sunday morning to worship Him corporately, and as we worship Him individually, by the way, that's day by day seeking to glorify Him, that when we worship Him, we must realize that genuine worship flows out of our entire being. And it will only come from an understanding of who God is and what He has done. In other words, remembering the Gospel day after day, week after week, causes us to join with Mary and say, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So what we see in Luke 1, verses 46-56 through is a song of praise. It's a song that Mary sings. It's a hymn that she sings as she reflects on who God is and what He has done. And thus, it can and should serve as an example to us for what genuine worship looks like. That's why as we, uh, as we meet every Sunday morning, we try to focus on the Word of God. We try to, to make sure that we focus heavily on Scripture and what Scripture says. Not because we want to worship this book, by the way. It's, there's a danger of worshiping this book. I actually grew up in a home where we had a Bible... And my parents were not believers at the time, but we grew up in a, I grew up in a home where we had a Bible. The Bible sat on the shelf. The Bible was never touched. The Bible was revered. You never put anything on top of the Bible. I made that mistake once. Don't put anything on top of the Bible, but whatever you do, don't open the Bible. Right? Because the book was revered. But the words inside the book were apparently functionally meaningless in our lives. The book was the object of worship, not the one who wrote the book. Not the one whom the book was about. And, and I want to be Bible-centered, but I want to remind you that this is just a... It's just paper with ink. That it, the words contained in it are the very words of God. That we have God revealing Himself to us through this book. But the book itself is nothing. That's why I encourage you to write in it. I encourage you to use it. I encourage you to carry it with you. Right? Because God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. And we want to be Bible-centered. Because being Bible-centered is rooted in our desire to be God-centered here at Harmony Bible Church. See, we need to understand that the way we know God is through His Word. So as we dig into our text, it becomes clear that Mary has an understanding of who God is and what He's done because she's firmly rooted in the Scriptures. So if you want to know God, we know God from here, and we know what He has done from here. Certainly we all have experiences. And we know God speaks to us. That the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. He speaks to us. That experiences come about and we see God work. But every one of those uh, still small voices that we hear, we need to examine in light of this. Every experience that we have, we need to examine in light of what this Word says. Mary has a firm understanding. She's rooted in the Scriptures. So while we don't have time to examine every single quote from the Old Testament that she sings in this song, or even every allusion to the Old Testament, it's evident that the Word of God is written on Mary's heart. So jumping right in, we're going to look at what Mary says. 
and how it relates to, these, to the Old Testament text. Uh, Luke 1, starting at verses 46 and 47, Mary says this, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She says, My soul exalts and my spirit has rejoiced. Listen to the similarity. Psalm 34, 2-3. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Verse 48. She says, For He has had regard for the humble state of His bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Psalm 138.6 For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly but the haughty He knows from afar. Verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things, and holy is His name. Psalm 71, verse 19, For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. You are the Mighty One, O God, who is like you. None. He is holy. Or Psalm 99, 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 50, Mary says, And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. Psalm 103.17, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Verse 51, He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thought of their heart. Psalm 98, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. Or Psalm 118, The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 52, she says, He's brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has exalted those who were humble. Psalm 75, verse 7 says, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Or Psalm 113, 7. He raises the poor from the dust, and He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Psalm 107.9 For He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry He has filled with what is good. And then, verse 54, she says, He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy and He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Psalm 98.3 He has remembered His loving kindness and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And these are just looking at the Psalms. How Mary was filled with the Psalms. And if you read 1 Samuel and you understand Hannah's prayer, you understand Hannah's song, you understand the correlation between Mary and other Old Testament texts, we need to understand that Mary, even though she didn't always directly quote the Old Testament in this song, she did at times, that's not the point. The point is that even though she didn't, instead... When she spoke, her her speech was affected by and seasoned with the truth of Scripture. Mary was filled with Scripture. 
So that when an opportunity came, when joy came, what flowed out of her mouth was the Word of God. You know, I've done the, the water illustration. I don't even need to do it again. So many times, right? That when you're provoked, right? What's inside of you is what comes out of you. I'll do it for somebody in case I, there's actually somebody here who's never seen this, right? So, so what's happening? Right? Water is coming out of the bo- out of the bottle. Why? Because there's water in the Bible, in the bottle. So there's water in the bottle. So when provoked, when when pushed, water is what comes out. And in the same way, if we are angry, if anger is inside of us and we're provoked, anger comes out. If lust is inside of us and, and we're provoked, lust comes out. But Mary, not provoked in a bad way, but provoked, nonetheless stirred, when she's stirred, what comes out of her? But praise to God. And it's rooted in the truth of Scripture. Mary understands the Word of God. Mary's language is such that it almost sounds identical to the Psalms. Because her speech was seasoned with, affected by the truth of Scripture. I believe this is precisely what Colossians 3.16 is talking about. When it says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. That as we interact with each other, our words, our interaction, the way we teach and admonish one another should be like we're singing the, the psalms. should be like we're singing Scripture to one another because our hearts are thankful and we're familiar with God and His Word. In the same way, Ephesians 5, verses 18-20 through 20 tells us, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The point is not that we walk around singing everything we say. Lord knows that that is not a good idea for me. Right? That, that If you've heard me sing, it's probably not a good idea for me to sing everything I say. The point is that we're so filled with the truth of God's Word, that it flows out of us in praise and joyful song as we interact with one another. That when stirred, what comes out of us are the very words of God because it's what's deep inside of us. Praise God for Mary's example. So as Mary reflected on God's goodness and grace in her life, it was praise, it was rejoicing that flowed out of her. I've talked about this illustration before, that there's this idea that we that thoughts in our lives produce emotions, and emotions produce actions, and that produces more thoughts, more emotions, more actions, and that ultimately builds character. That when something happens in our lives, we think about it. As human beings, we are constantly thinking. And we interpret the events of life. Stimuli comes into our life, we think about it. And that thinking produces an emotion. So if I go home and I want to watch, well, the Patriots aren't on today. Tomorrow night I want to watch the Patriots. And Kim says, you know what, honey, I really need you to do such and such. The first thing I do is I think about it. And I run that through my thinking grid. 
And that thinking grid produces an emotion based on what I've thought. So I have an opportunity. And in that opportunity, I can think, well, you know, she has no idea how hard I've worked today. She has no idea the things that I do for her. I cannot believe that she sat home all day doing nothing, and now I have to take the trash out. I could think that way, and that's going to produce an emotion that's not a very godly emotion. Probably produce some actions that aren't very good actions either, both on my part or her part. But instead, I have an opportunity to think biblically and to say, this is an opportunity to fulfill my God-given role, to bless my wife, to be used by God, to be a servant, right? To sacrifice self for the sake of another. Is that not what love is? And when I think that way, that produces a completely different emotion. And that emotion produces a completely different action. Instead of saying, quiet, I'm watching the Patriots, I get up and I do what it is I can do to serve. You see, Mary, when stirred, she thinks biblically because she understands Scripture. She understands God. She knows God. And that produces in her an emotion of joy, of rejoicing, and faithfulness. So that Elizabeth can say, and blessed is she who, is, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord spoke to her. So with that in mind, I want us to see two things that Mary rejoices over. Two things that not only brought her hope, but will bring us hope as well. So the first point in our sermon outline, all of that's just introduction, the first point in our sermon outline is, number one, who God is. Number one, who God is. Mary begins by rejoicing in who God is and says, verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. Consider the ways in which Mary refers to God in this song. In verse 46, Mary refers to God as her Lord. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios. And it refers to a master or one who has authority. In other words, Mary understood God to be the one who had ultimate authority over her and could direct her life as He chose. She understood God to be Lord. Verse 46, Mary refers to God as her Savior. The implication is that Mary understood her need for a deliverer. As we mentioned last week, Mary was a sinner in need of grace. Mary was not perfect in righteousness or without sin. Instead, Mary was a sinner in need of grace, and she recognized that and therefore could call God her Savior. She knew that she needed a deliverer, a rescuer, who would save her from disaster, namely the penalty of her sin. She would agree with Isaiah 43.11 when God said, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides Me. She understood that God was the One who was her Savior. Then in verse 49, Mary calls God the Mighty One. Verse 49, she calls God the Mighty One. This phrase literally means the one who is able. The one who is capable or able. 
and refers to the fact that God is capable of doing anything. Psalm 50, verse 1, we see this same title used. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. That He can do what He chooses because He is the Mighty One. And finally, again in verse 49, Mary refers to God as the one whose name is Holy, which conveys the idea of being set apart or superior. Mary understands that God stands above His creation. As Mary utters these words, she knows that God is holy, that He's unlike any other. As 1 Samuel 2.2 says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So Mary refers to God as Lord, as Master, as one who has authority. She refers to God as Savior, as one who's going to be a rescuer, a redeemer, as the, the Mighty One, the one who is capable, who is able to do as He pleases. She refers to God as holy, completely perfect, set apart from all else. Mary understood who God is. Not just who God was, who God is, who He remains to be. Today, So having seen who God is, now let's consider the second point in our outline. The second point is what God has done. Number two, what God has done. Here in verses 51-55, through we see Mary rejoicing over what God has done. And the refrain that is seen again and again in these verses is, He has. So while we as English readers, we're prone to think of these actions as past tense, because we read, He has, and we think, oh, it's a past tense, that God's already done these things. They're best understood as describing the future work of God with the certainty of a past event. God's going to do this, and I'm so sure of it that I can describe it in a past tense kind of way. In other words, Mary understood what God would do through her Son as certain or already accomplished. I don't believe that Mary understood everything. I don't think Mary had a clear picture of what was going to happen and how exactly everything was going to play out. But she believed the promises of God. And she understood that when God made a promise, and that when this promise came to fruition, and her being pregnant with this child, that it was as sure as done. It was a certain, there was a certainty to it because God had promised it and He'd begun to establish it. It's the beauty of Advent. And we think about Advent and we look back of the coming of Jesus so that we can not only remember those who looked forward to the first coming, but we can also look forward to the second coming with surety. He came before, He said He's coming again, He will do it. And we can say God has established His kingdom. And we can say so with certainty, with surety, even though it's not fully realized here on earth. So we can speak in a past tense way, looking forward to the surety of the future as Mary did. Look at verses 51-55 through with me. 51. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. 
He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy, and as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. She says He's done mighty deeds. He's scattered the proud and exalted the humble. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and given help to Israel, His servant. She says, He sent away the rich, empty-handed, and He's filled the hungry with good things. You see, in this passage, I believe we see three enemies of the Gospel. Three enemies of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see self-importance, self-governance, and self-sufficiency. Number one, self-importance or pride. You see, pride stands in the way of the Gospel because we don't see our need for a Savior. And I hope I can communicate this next section. Because even, even last night as I was thinking about this message and I was thinking about this text again and I've been working through it all week, I just I shouted out in joy in response to how God was teaching me. I had a merry moment, even in the text, where I said, I, this is incredible, God. I praise You for what You're doing. And I looked at Kim and I said, I just hope I can communicate the truth of this Scripture and what God's showing me in and through this. That this idea of self-importance, He scattered the proud and exalted the humble. I want you to see how that relates to God, to Mary calling God her Savior. That the pride say, I don't need a the prideful say, I don't need a Savior. The humble say, I need to be saved. I need a Savior. And self-importance is an enemy of the Gospel. Because it denies not only our need, but also who God is. Number two, this idea of self-governance, or sovereignty, if you will. And this is seeing ourselves as our own Lord. The Scripture says, Mary says, He brought down rulers from their thrones and given help to Israel His servant. He takes those who reign and rule over their own lives, who have their own little kingdoms that stand opposed to His kingdom, and He brings them down, and He exalts, He lifts up His servants. See, self-governance sees ourselves as Lord. It's an enemy of God because we make ourselves our own Lord. We exalt ourselves as being the master of our lives instead of letting Him be who He is. So it not only, once again, attacks our need, or it doesn't address our need, but it also attacks who God is. And then thirdly, self-sufficiency, or autonomy, if you will. Self-sufficiency. And this is seeing ourselves as mighty. Seeing ourselves as the one who is capable. I can do this. I remember before I was a believer, when I was uh, 18 and 19 years old, I really thought that I had the world in my hands. I thought that I was capable, that I could control things, that I... Everything was about me, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. I, I, I. As it so often is. We see ourselves as mighty. Nobody knows anything. I have this under control. And as you go through life, hopefully, as you get humbled, you realize you really don't have this under control. That you're not capable. That you need to rest in the One who is mighty. The Scripture, Mary says, He sent away the rich, those who thought they were mighty, those who thought they were capable, those who thought they were self-sufficient. He sent them away empty-handed. And He filled the hungry. 
Those who recognize their need with good things. Why? Because He's the Mighty One. He is the One who is mighty. Not you. Not me. That's why Scripture again and again says, don't trust in riches. Trust in the Lord. We see ourselves as mighty when indeed He is the One who is mighty and capable. So we not only, again, neglect our need, our need for God, our need for relying on Him, but we also deny who He is when we think that we are self-sufficient, when we think that we're autonomous and we have things under control. We deny the One who is mighty. You see, each of these attitudes are enemies of the Gospel. Because they not only deny God's work, but they deny the very nature of who He is. And I hope you see this. That in order to understand what God has done, we need to understand who He is. Because the two are inextricably linked. That the work of God is a result of who God is. Let me try to explain by way of review. Mary's prayer shows us who God is. She refers to God as her Savior, as her Lord, the Mighty One, the One who is holy. And then Mary's prayer reveals what God has done. He's done mighty deeds by scattering the proud, exalting the humble, bringing down rulers from thrones, and giving help to His servants by sending the rich away empty-handed and filling the hungry with good things. That as Savior, we need to see our we need to see Him as Savior. We need to we need to deny ourselves and no longer be prideful, but see our need for Him to rescue us. We need to see Him as He is as Lord. By the way, we don't make Him the Lord of our life. He is the Lord. He is the Master. And when we stand over that and we say, "No, I am the Master," we deny Him. In order to understand His work, we need to understand who He is. He is Savior. He is Lord. And He is mighty. He is the One who sends those who are rich away empty-handed. And He fills the hungry with good things. So we need to recognize who God is and what He has done. So here's the big question. Here's the, the question of the week. So how do we apply all of this to our lives, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take that, knowing who God is and knowing what God has done, and how do we apply that and Mary's prayer to our lives here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, number one, number one, I want to encourage you to rejoice in who God is. To reflect on who God is. That He is Savior. That He is Lord. That He is the Mighty One. That He is Holy. Part of that begins with storing His Word in your heart. That you need to know, if you're going to know who God is, if you're going to know God, you need to know His Word. Because He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And we need to be serious, both as individuals and as a church, about storing God's Word in our hearts. We're given an opportunity to develop a relationship with the God of the universe. Mary, in one of the most difficult times in human history, an angel comes to her with this news. 
She's prepared, not because she's great, but because God is great and she knows who God is. We need to store God's Word in our heart. We need to rejoice in who He is. The foundation of what we, of what we do needs to be rooted in who God is. And then, and only then, once we understand that, then we can understand, we can rejoice in what God has done. When we understand who God is, then we, we can understand what He has done and rejoice in that. So secondly, we need to rejoice in what God has done. Again, it's about storing God's Word in our hearts. Understanding that He is the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sustainer of all things. And therefore, as such, He creates, He redeems, He sustains. That He's the Savior, He's the Lord, He's the Mighty One. And therefore, He saves He orchestrates things according to His will. He is the Mighty One. He's capable. And we can trust His promises. So with that, if we're going to rejoice in what God has done, we need to live in light of what He's done. It says He scattered the proud and exalted the humble. So we should be humble. We humble ourselves before a mighty God. He's, he's bringing down the rulers. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and He gives help to His servants. So we should submit to His rule, both as individuals and as a church. What would God have us do is a question we should be asking ourselves every day and every time we get together. I was just having a conversation earlier um, with Irene, and I don't want to talk about too, too many of the details until we, we talk about this as a church, but having a conversation about uh, how we use our finances as a church, and, and how, do we, how do we submit to His rule in our lives? And just in that conversation, I can't tell you how blessed I was to think of how God could use us. Us. Little Harmony Bible Church. Praise God, because it's not about us. It's not about us being mighty or capable. It's about submitting to His rule in our lives. And we should constantly be asking ourselves those things. What does it mean to humble ourselves? What does it mean to submit to His rule? Living in light of His Word, it means hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He sends away the rich empty-handed and He fills the hungry with good things. We should constantly come before Him as dirty, hell-deserving, rotten sinners in need of grace, as Bill says. Week after week after week. We come before Him not filled up with our own righteousness, but hungry, thirsting for righteousness. Living in light of what He has done. And then thirdly, if we do these things, if we rejoice, we remember to rejoice as individuals and as a church, rejoice in who God is, and rejoice in what God has done, then I believe we stand with Mary. We will stand with Mary and say, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His slave. What an amazing statement. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Even as I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think of communion. And as we prepare to take communion in a few minutes, to participate in the Lord's Supper, I always say, Communion is such an emotional thing. And thinking about Scripture, which tells us to worship God in spirit and in truth, this idea that we need to be worshiping in light of the truth of Scripture, but in spirit also, that it's emotional, 
It's an emotional experience as we worship Him, but it's rooted in truth. That Mary is incredibly emotional in this, phrase, in this text. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit rejoices, has rejoiced in God my Savior. And that's what we should say when we come to communion. Why? For He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. See, Mary recognized her need for a Savior. She recognized that she was a sinner in need of grace. But when she realized that, she also realized the beauty of His grace. The magnificence of His grace. So when we come to this table in a few minutes, we do remember, humbly we remember, that we are but a slave. That we are a sinner in need of grace. That we were proud. That we were ruling our own kingdom. That we thought we were rich and self-sufficient. But He has humbled us and made us His servant and shown us that He alone provides for our needs. And in that, He exalts the humble. He gives help to His servants. And He fills us with good things. So we can say, I'm just a humble slave in need of grace. But that grace is sufficient. So my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So in closing, I just want to say this. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if this resonates with you and you understand what I'm saying, that you understand what this Gospel is, what I mean when I talk about Jesus Christ coming, dying on the cross, Jesus Christ living a perfect life, dying on the cross for you, when I talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that He defeated death and sin and suffering, and that He's coming back, and that your sin debt has been paid, if you understand what that means and you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you know who God is, and you're rejoicing in what He has done, then I encourage you to partake of this communion table. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, we ask that you pass the elements by. This is a family meal. This is something that is special, that is not unique to believers of Harmony, to, to members of Harmony Bible Church, but it's unique to believers. So if you're a believer, this table is open to you. You don't need to be a member, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to know who God is and what He has done. But if you've never, if you've never sat down and said, you know, I, I understand who God is. For the first time in my life, I, I, I understand who God is, and I understand what He has done through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation to say, I understand that God is my Savior. That, that He died because I need to be saved from my sin. That I understand that God is my Master. That I understand that He's the Mighty One. That He is capable and He is holy. He's set apart from me in all of creation. And therefore, I must humble myself. I must submit to His rule. And I must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Today is the day to do that. It's not about saying a prayer it's not about walking an aisle, but it is about a turning, a changing of one's mind. A changing of one's mind which is followed by a life of seeking to follow. I'm going to tell you, you have no idea what that means. If you're making that decision today and you say, I want to follow Jesus starting today, to be your master, that means He's going to direct every single part of your life. But there's no better life. Today is the day of salvation. And I encourage you to make that decision now if you want to talk more about that, talk with me after the service. Talk with Bill. Talk with Mark. We want to talk with you about what that means to follow Jesus. To know who God is and to rejoice in what He has done. For the rest of us, 
Let's just spend a few minutes just thinking about what communion represents. That it's an opportunity to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to remember his work. And scripture tells us to not come to this table lightly or inadvisably, but instead to recognize our sin, to see our sin, but also to see the magnificence of his grace. So I encourage you to humbly come before him, pray over your sin, pray over just any areas of your life that you need to confess and repent, but also rejoice in the provision that he has made. Let's pray.